Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, welcome listeners to Fortress on a Hill. We are back after a little, little bit of a little bit of a hiatus, and uh, we've got a great episode for you today. We're going to talk with Kagan. Um, we're going to do his his episode zero. We're going to dive into all things great bearded Kagan. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, how he how he came to join the military, what his childhood was like a little bit, um, and and just kind of his his journey. Uh, along the path, you know, becoming, uh, becoming a dissenter. Um, so, but before we get started, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about how Kagan and I met. So this was, I want to say back in like May or June of 2018. Um, we'd only been doing the podcast for six or seven months. And um, I, I heard from this guy named Kagan. And he was he was really enthusiastic. He was he told he told me thank you. It was really nice to hear some veteran voices that were discussing the anti-war, anti-interventionist side of things. And um, it wasn't too long after that that um, he uh, he came on the podcast and he and I talked about um, some of his background about it, you know, working in intelligence, about trying to understand how the work that he did on the intel side back here in the states affected the the mission and the wars that he worked on over uh over in combat combat areas operational areas um a little time after that i'm not sure how long it was he and i attended this really neat event called vetspar and i've talked about it a few times on the podcast but basically it's just a place for civilians people who are non-veterans who have have very little if any experience with veterans to talk to people like the three of us and, and hear our stories, hear what we have to say. And, um, I got to know him a little, a, a little bit through that way. And then, um, I, I put it in my mind. It's like, you know, I think this guy, he would, he would make a great podcaster. He would make a great addition to, uh, Danny and my little collective over in the corner. And so we, uh, um, extended that invitation to him. And, uh, that's, that's, that's how Kagan came to uh, to be a part of the podcast, and I'm I'm so thankful that he is. Um, Danny, do you uh, want to get us started with some some questions? I do, I do, and uh, you know it's awesome having Kagan on for a number of reasons. I mean, um, we just thought to ourselves, what the podcast really needs is a is a third white male. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, because we just want to be as diverse as possible. Um, no, but you know, what's really interesting about having Kagan on is um, differing perspectives, differing experience in the military, different branch, um, different job within that branch, uh, and to some extent, differing 
time period of like when he came in, uh, and then also what he does, you know, like you know after the military, like like he has a real job. You know, and and like Henry and I, we kind of don't. You know, like I mean, the only job we share that's a job is like, uh, you know, playing with Power Rangers and stuff or whatever. My, my references are dated, even with parenting, because that's who I am as like a man. But like, um, you know, I think that's really uh, interesting. And and it's funny because I haven't met Henry or Kagan in person. It's like the most modern relationship of all time. It's 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 like in that movie Demolition Man where like with Wesley Snipes and Sylvester Stallone, they don't even have like sex anymore. It's just all over headphones. Like we're going there, folks. Get yep. ready. Okay, enjoy the last of your actual carnal experiences because it's like a few more years. That's it. Um, thanks, COVID, uh, which is what really should replace thanks Obama, I think. But uh, I'm a backstory guy, right? And so not having met people and generally. Besides the banter we do before and after, um, you know, I don't know all the backstory. Like I said with Henry, and we've been at this for years, you know, um, and I'm fascinated by that. Like I, I, people talk all day and some people go through their whole careers and when they do their interviews and what, so they never talk about themselves or, or like the, at least not like the anecdotal stuff. But I think that's who informs who you are, like what informs who you are, like your family, your interests, your friends, your, your geography. That's important. And so. Kagan, I'm just going to pry into your life with like probably three or four sequential peppered questions, but like tell folks uh, where you were born. Um, take us basically like zero to like the end of middle school in terms of uh, where you were at, what your family experience was like, and kind of your community experience was like. And then and then we'll talk uh, what kind of teenager were you, which is like my favorite game with friends and people I'm dating. So, yeah. Um, so, I have moved around a lot in my life, like when I was, so I was born in Angleton, Texas, which is like 50 miles outside of Houston. Um, my dad was in the Navy before I was born. He was in the nuclear power program. And uh, so when we were born, he was working at a nuclear power plant in Houston, 55 miles away. So he would have like a two hour drive home. Um, but so like my brother and I, we had a crazy experience because my mom, I guess, like having kids was always hard for her. Like she had a baby that was stillborn like a year before us. And then my brother and I, I have a twin brother, um, me and him were three months premature. And so every day at the hospital, you know, they would be telling our parents, like, be prepared because they're probably not going to be around in the morning. And like every day, and then they would say like, oh, if they did survive, you know, we'd have to be on crutches. We would have all these respiratory problems, like all this stuff, because we were born right like before the trimester when your lungs actually develop. So, and you know, this was in the mid eighties. So like, you know, technology wasn't as great for preemies. So they were just like, be, be prepared. And magically we survived and magically we were okay, which was great. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, but we only stayed there for like two and a half years. Cause I guess my mom is really not happy there. And we moved to Florida because my dad on another power plant, but that was only like six months. And then they both decided to go back to school. So then we went to the college that my mom had gone to, which is in Southern Illinois and, uh, just across the river from the Mississippi. So we were there for a little bit and then we moved to St. Louis and we had a really tough time there. Like we, my parents were both making minimum wage at the time because my mom had lost her job. So my dad had to stop going to school. So then we just were like trying to survive on like $5 an hour, basically. 
and uh, that was really tough on them. And like we had periods of time where we would have to go to the garbage or to the, like the garbage cans at the grocery store and get the stuff that they had like just thrown away that was still good. But it was like, oh, you know, we need this, so like let's do it. And uh, that was rough on my parents. So they like had separated for a bit and so me and my brother moved up to wisconsin with my mom for a bit and then eventually our dad came up there when they decided that they were going to stay together for the kids um but uh it, it like things got a little easier i guess when we were together again and um then we moved to we we moved a couple times in wisconsin and then we moved down to to chicago area where my parents were both working and we got to, it was a nursing facility. And so we got to live there. And I also grew up Christian scientist. And I don't know how many of you guys know about that religion, but it's like, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a, it was started by a woman in the 1860s. And it's very much about like, you know, pretending like medicine isn't real and like your pain isn't real. So I had a lot of time to like, you know, just suffer through sickness and stuff, <laughs> which wasn't great, but, um, that's where we were like we were living at a christian science nursing facility because that's where my parents were working and uh it was nice because it was a nice property and they had townhouses and stuff for the part for the people um but i mean it's a lot when you have to move all the time like we had multiple years where we'd have to move in the middle of the school year you know and just like you know you're moving every couple of years so you never really get to like understand what putting down roots is it's just about um you know like oh hey i'm in a new place and so it was cool because it really gave me like an understanding of how to adjust to things really quickly because i had to like i didn't have any choice i just was like all right i'm in a new environment like let me acclimate and i think that was really great like it's definitely helped me as an adult like having to learn that from a young age and uh then like so middle school was literally like sixth grade. I was in one school, seventh grade. I was in another school because there was like a small little school that was like a sort of private school, but not really. And my parents really like, they were like, Hey, if you want to go, you can go. So I went to a different school than my brother for, and it was weird because I would only be in the dorm for like the weekdays. So it'd be like five days a week. I'm there. And then I come home on the weekends. And then at the end of that year, was really tough because that's when <clears throat> my mom was pregnant and we also found out that she had breast cancer at the same time so again because we didn't go to the doctor that much being christian scientists you know we didn't the only reason we found out that she was sick was because she was pregnant and she had the blood test and they were like oh fuck like something's wrong here so we ended up moving to virginia where my mom's family is they all live in like the newport news area um and so we moved there and like went to middle school there and it was like, you know, that was like a rough year because not only were we adjusting to an entire new state, entire, I mean, like always, it was just like move again. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we were also having to take care of our mom who was really sick. And that was, you know, that's rough when you're 13, 14 and you're trying to figure out like yourself and like deal with puberty in the midst of also dealing with your mom who's dying in front of you. <laughs> So it was a lot to, um, it was a lot to like, you know, I mean, that was a good, that was a good year for me as far as growth. Like I learned so much about myself and about like really 
like when you have a family member who's sick, you know, you really have to think outside of yourself a lot more than you would at that age. You know, we would have to like take turns. Like she would sleep in this lazy boy because it was too hard for her to go to upstairs. So my brother and I would take turns sleeping downstairs to like, you know, we if she needed to go to the bathroom or something, we'd like wake up and help her go. But that again, that's not like something that, you know, regular 14 year olds have to deal with. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's basically like my early life was just moving around a lot, a lot of new experiences, a lot of new um, new people. And it was good because I think it really helped us get to be sociable, you know, learn how to like talk to people and just like get along with people really easily just because we had to. Sorry. So, yeah, it's funny. I, I said this with Henry last time. Um, and now I'm thinking about you saying it and then thinking about like my soldiers and then even some of the officers, but especially among my soldiers, like that sort of transient childhood uh, many times because the militaries become a family business to a certain extent. Like, so a lot of them were actual like brats, you know, like army brats or whatever, Navy brats, but a lot of them weren't, but like that was a, I think probably like I've never seen any stats on this or if they've ever even been done, but it does seem like that is a more like a disproportionately common experience in the folks who end up going and living that same life in the military, like choosing to volunteer. I can't tell you like the percentage, but it was high of soldiers who had and it wasn't always military, but like th their dad worked in this kind of job where there was like some issues economically. But for a lot, a lot of people who were in the military in our generation that I met. Um, they had like a, a transientness to a certain extent, a lot of changing schools, a lot of changing states, a lot of changing communities. And I, I mean, I'm not uh, a psychologist, but it does strike me as not an accident to a certain extent, because that, you know, I mean, having to make new friends and like, it's not, it's not all that different when you get to a new unit, if you stay in for a while, you know, it's like you quickly like assess the social situation. Who am I going to be friends with? Who can I trust at work? Who's going to work hard? Who do you have to avoid? Um, how do you fit in and does that involve uh, like a chameleon aspect, not even in a negative way necessarily, but just like survival instincts of being a human being in a social space as social animals. Uh, so you said you went to high school, though, in St. Louis. Is that correct? Yeah. I So uh, so my mom passed away in February of 2001, which was my like in my eighth grade year. And. My mom had gone to this school, and her younger brother had gone to the school. My mom was the second youngest of five, and so like, and her and her youngest brother had like the best life because my grandmother is like one of those badass ladies that, like, she was born in the '30s. She got married and like, you know, ran away with a marine at 17 and had a kid, and like her first kid, and then just like, you know, that was not a great relationship. He unfortunately was you know, really alcoholic and abusive towards all them. And so my grandmother had like been a part of this company called Home Interiors and she just like rose through the ranks like really quickly. So then she was in charge of the entire East Coast, you know, when my mom was like growing up. And uh, so my mom and her youngest brother, especially, they got to have a really great like experience growing up like as an adult. And so my mom went there and uh, it's like a, there's like uh, an entire campus like like you have in the St. Louis campus is like preschool through high school and you can be in the dorm as early as seventh grade. So there was a lot of like my uncle started in seventh grade. My mom started when she was a freshman and 
they went all the way through like all and then the college campus is just across the river in southern illinois and like an hour away and uh my mom really wanted us to go there like that was one of her last wishes was like i want you guys to go there and uh there's no way that we were going to be able to afford it because we didn't have insurance when my mom got sick and, you know, pre-existing conditions. There's no way she would have gotten it when she was. So when she passed, we all of a sudden had like a $287,000 medical bill. Not to mention, you know, like I said, when I was born, my brother and I had to be in the NICU for three months. And that was like a $400,000 bill in 1986. <laughs> so... Like, you know, it's just, it's so it might as well be a bazillion. It's such a high number that it's a bazillion is the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like what? And so, you know, there was no way that we were going to be able to afford it. But my grandmother (laughs) being a badass, she, um, she flew from Virginia to St. Louis to talk to the board of trustees. And she was like, look, I sent my daughter here for eight years. I sent my son here for 10 years. I paid full tuition for them. You guys are getting like all of the money when I passed. Like, so like let my grandkids go to this school. It's like, this was my daughter's last wish. Like let my grandkids go to this school. And uh, so we did, but it was, you know, and we had visited, like we, it wasn't like we were, you know, going in sight unseen. Like we had gone for a visit because they have visiting weekends and you can go and like, you know, you have like a day of school where you get to go see what school is like. And then you get to have the weekend where you're at the dorm and you get to see what the fun is like and like what the community is like. And we both were totally into it because there's so much that we could do. And it's a small school and it's like like a lot of private schools, it's a small school and they have more money than they know what to do with. So they're spending it on the kids and like on what is going on. And so I really wanted to be a part of that. And we got to go and like uh, we were both in sports, like I was playing football and that was the easy thing. It was so easy to be in sports because it's so small. You know, you they encourage you to do everything. And I think that's what I liked the most about it was you're encouraged to there's this thing called the whole man concept, which is the idea of like, you know, understanding, like broadening your perspectives and not just getting honed in on one thing. And I think that's what I loved the most about it was the ability to really, um, you know, I could I could do something different than if I had just been in a public school like I was able to play three sports a year and do theater stuff and do uh, music because I've been playing music forever. And, you know, my brother and I were really into playing music then. So it was just like, it was so easy for us to do all those things. And I feel like if I was at a public school, there's no way I would have been able to do that. (laughs) So, or like, it would have been so much harder to do all of those things at the same time. And I just would have had no time. But like there, you know, especially when you're in the dorm, your time is so structured to fill it with stuff that, it was just easy and and like and you're encouraged to do it like i said so it was really great to like be again be in an environment where I, like i got to see what people with resources life were like and like you're surrounded by these kids who a lot of them had gone through the system their whole time and i think that's what really took me back was uh you know i'm i'm like okay we're coming in a new environment like what's this going to be like and um, but then you see, like, I mean, the, it was so small, like people's lives were so small, even though they had all these resources and like a lot of them would go on trips and stuff like their 
their perspective was so tiny because that's all they had known. And so when I got there, you know, a lot of people were like, that's the first question people asked me is like, oh, how was it leaving home at 14? And then right after your mom passed. And I was like, it really wasn't like anything else. Like we'd moved a lot. Like it was just like, okay, here's another thing to adapt to. And especially after having that really hard year, I was like, fuck, like being away from home is nothing compared to that. So, so it was, you know, it was really easy for me to like get, like to really absorb what I was doing and like try a lot of stuff. So I'm jumping ahead here. I, I have like one more like question just kind of about like what the kind of kid you were in high school, what you were into. But before that, it's just because it struck me. And, you know, and if you're comfortable talking about it, I, I could, I can't help but wonder or ask, I guess, to what extent or not, not only, you know, your mom's passing at that age, but also some of previous to going away to high school, some of like the economic uncertainty when your parents were, you know, working for minimum wage and the moving a lot and just like feeling that insecurity. Cause like, there, I think a lot of people who haven't had it at all don't fully understand like the mental stress and even physical manifestation measures that come from economic anxiety. But having lived some of that, having seen the healthcare system, having seen uh, the, sh just the struggle that life could be for so many Americans, and um, did, did that in any way inform like what you decided to do now, like the kind of work that you've decided to do in the community? I mean, I, I mean I'm jumping ahead, but I, just, I had to ask, because I, I, some of this is new to me, you know, about you. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, no, I I've, I feel like I've seen, like, yeah, I, I, as a white dude, as a straight white dude, I know I have a lot of privileges, and, uh, but every, you know, everyone has their struggles, and um, I think, you know, from a young age, I really got to see how unfair and oppressive the systems are that we live in, and, you know, you can do everything right and still fail. You can do everything the way you're supposed to, and, you know, life, like, shit happens. And so, yeah, it was really like, I, I think that's always been a driving force in me. Like, I always have wanted to help people. And I think that's honestly been like the main point of my life is that I want to help people have a better life. And um, yeah, no, I feel like that that's definitely like one of the biggest points about why I do what I do, like why I've gone into the things that I've gone into in life is because of that, because I... I decided to, um, you know, I want I want people to help each other out because I, I know that feeling of when you help other people, it really does. It's the best feeling in the world. You know, it's better than any, like, you know, material thing that you can get is that feeling of, like, when you know that you've helped somebody and you can see the thanks in their eye and you can see that feeling like, you know, it's it's. Yeah, it's just best. It's the best feeling in the world to me. And and I've been lucky to like put myself in positions where I've been able to feel that a bunch. And and yeah, that's definitely like the driving focus in my life, I think. Are you sure it's not to like make the big bucks cuz I'm I'm sure that that's a very lucrative, you know, helping people is the most lucrative profession in the world. Everyone knows that, right? <laughs> yeah. What does it say about our society that that's not true? You ever actually like really think about that? Like it's a dark place it'll take you. I don't recommend it, listeners. Like don't. Like just just, you know, just watch the real housewives, you'll be happier. But I mean, but like seriously, it's it's a serious and interesting thing and um you know, the studies have been done on like all different cultures and stuff including, you know, um 
sort of uh, like like distant cultures, uh, whether it be like in like remote areas that haven't been really like uh, exposed to modern life and all that, or even just like more traditional like communitarian communities, like that whole like it takes a village thing, but like not just the Hillary Clinton book, but like they've done the studies like the happiness and security factor regardless of level of income because a lot of them are very like poor communities or at least don't have a lot of resources or modern ones like they've done the studies i mean that's why like in the 80s and 90s there was all those books that came out like i think the famous one was like bowling alone showing like all about how like separateness with like the nuclear family and like distance from the extended family and distance from like a communitarian aspect actually breeds not only anxiety but like depression and those things and so your discussion of like helping people as the best feeling is like grounded in psychological like and anthropological research and yet our society in america does seem very much committed to the bowling alone (laughs) you know like every man for himself to a certain extent you and your 2.5 kids and your wife that's it, right? Like pull your up by yourself up by your bootstraps. That that fascinates me like an enormous amount. Um, progress is not always pro- progressive, you know. Uh, if that makes sense, I think I may have just no, coined well, something I there. Mean, yeah, for me, I look at like the the commodification of literally everything. Like individualism is the easiest way to make money off of people. When you when you can do like everybody's data i mean like every little thing of a person's life is a way to make for someone to make money off of you that's the like if you're going just on the for-profit model of course that's the easiest way to do it but we know how detrimental that is to our ability to function as humans because we're social creatures by nature and like you know our brains are still stuck hundred thousand years ago when we were you know like not living in such organized communities but you know so like all this stuff it it yeah i think about that all the time that's like my because i see it so much with my folks too just the isolation and the depression and just the feeling like they don't have any nobody really has their back and yeah it's really frustrating (laughs) so forgive the uh mower but you know to to go light or maybe not lighter but all right so you're you're at this school like it's your bazillionth move, sticking with the fake number nomenclature. Um, you're pretty adaptable. Now you're seeing privilege for the first time, or like really like most people being privileged. Um, you're playing all the sports. It's interesting to me that you're also like a theater and a music kid. Um, that element is not always the cliche for soldiers, and you know what I mean. Like that doesn't always like, like football. Yeah, you know, wrestling stuff like that. That's that's fascinating because I think sometimes the people who are artistically inclined before they go into the military, again, I can't demonstrate this through statistics, but I just am like anecdotally pretty big sample size sure it's correct, that there's also a correlation of the ones who then are more thoughtful, more likely to be critical of the wars, maybe more likely to do public service work after. So that interests me. But I guess if you had to describe yourself socially, like now we're talking sophomore, junior, senior year, like where did you fit in? It sounds like you played in a lot of worlds, but like how would people – if someone wrote a blurb at the end of your senior year, like at West Point, one of the old traditions is that your roommate or your best friend writes your blurb. Oh, so it's right. actually written at, so a lot of them, if you look at it, they still, not everyone does it anymore, but a lot of people still do. So if you look at it, it's always written like, not like I, this, it's not in the first person. It's like Danny was the traditional cadet. Like mine was written by my best bud. How would somebody basically write your blurb about like who you were like in high school, right? <laughs> like if you had to speculate. Um, 
in high school like so because i was in a bunch of different worlds i was very much a social butterfly so like i would i had you know i had friends that i would be with and uh, like my, my best friends were the kids who were in my band so like my brother my uh, our singer fred morrison our drummer at the time andy bickerton um you know like we and our other guitar player max horner like they were like the kids that especially senior year because that's when the band really started to like do something but um like yeah no i because i was in all these different groups it really helped because i was like you know and i feel like it was so easy for me to be comfortable around people and just have a good time i i like to do that i like to see you know other people and and then being in a dorm too like it when you're in a dorm in high school it's not the same as college at least like at our school i mean a lot of private schools it's not it's not the same because you're still a minor so you can't like do everything but if you follow the rules you actually have like a lot of freedom so because then the people trust you and also just like being in a dorm during those formative years is so awesome because you get to be like you get to make really good friends with those people and i that's what's so cool now is like some of them i haven't seen since you know 2005 when i graduated but the minute we talk is just like nothing like no time is lost and i have a bunch of people where that's the case and i think that's because we didn't just go to school together like we lived together for this four five and this if i went to the college for my freshman year so and a lot of kids go because it's like easy it's they, they like expect it it's like at the time it was like 80 percent of kids went from the high school to the college so like only 20 percent went to other colleges so like you get to kind of, you get to really grow up with your friends and you know when you're spending 10 months out of the year together you you really get to know each other and you get to care about each other in a way that like makes you more like family and i i'm so grateful for that like the boys and the girls you know i had friends like that because we had a boys and girls dorm and so uh yeah but i mean it was just it was so easy to do a lot and for me i just i feel like <laughs> i i i really had a lot of energy and i was really like you know i'm the dude that like makes the like I don't know. I feel like when when we perform and stuff like musically, I'd be like making a lot of jokes and stuff and just be silly a lot. But uh, one of my friends, <laughs> one of my friends said, you know, because like people often that only know me or my brother, they always want to know like, oh, what is the other one like? And I uh, I was talking to I got the opportunity when I moved out from Georgia I, one of my buddies from high school was going to, he was in Pensacola, he was doing his flight training, and uh, my roommate in uh, Georgia had to come down with me because she was, like, helping me drive somewhat, and so she asked my friend, she's like, hey, like, what was, what are they, like, what are they like then, and he said, he's like, well, Kagan's the kind of guy who, like, you know, he'll, he gets everybody excited to go do something, <laughs> He's like, he's the one that's like, hey, like, let's go do this. And then, like, people will go do it. Right. Social, uh, social engineer. Uh, yeah. Right. Did, so I'm guessing you were the type then. Tell me if I'm right, just like speculating based on the way you describe yourself. Did you, were you the linchpin that connected a bunch of different groups? Like, in other words, were people friends because of you? Because, like, you were in this world, this world. They may not have otherwise been friends, but you were kind of like their link. Yeah, yeah, that definitely does. It's funny because I saw, I've seen that in other places where I live too, where like, you know, I had a friend group and then it was like, oh, when Kelly and I left, they just kind of like stopped being friends. <laughs> so, so Lynchpin is the actual like hinge of the relationship almost like, yeah. 
okay. So, so, so uh, okay. Before before I pivot to, to Henry and I, uh, you were in music. You were into theater, right? Yeah. Uh, when you were junior, senior era, uh, was like your number one, number two, like popular music that you liked. And like when we talk theater, like what's your favorite like musical or play? Like what was your at the time? Like what was your thing for each of those? Um. Well. I, uh, you know, being in high school in the early 2000s, there was like a really interesting shift musically. And, you know, me being a guitar player, like I started out with pop punk because it was energetic. It was easy to play. It was like fun to play for other people, too. So that was like a good starting point. But as I got better, I wanted to find music that had that same kind of energy, but was technically harder. So and this is, you know, like when the whole melodic hardcore, like screamo stuff was really getting its start. So I was really into that. And then I really started getting more into metal. And like, that's where I've been. <laughs> I've been in this like metal, like different metal phase. But because it was the same thing, like I wanted that energy. I wanted that passion. And but I wanted to like do it in a way that was going to challenge me musically. And so I just like that's kind of why I gravitated towards metal, because I was like, oh, this is like you know jazz but it's just heavy and mm -hmm. and it like so that was what really grabbed me and and also like with metalcore at the time there was a lot of uplifting lyrics like a lot of it was about you know bettering yourself and like bettering the world and i really liked that of course so i don't think a lot of people would would, would imagine that right when most people think of like metal they're probably thinking the opposite like it's like dark and like it's if you play the records backwards people are going to shoot each other and stuff like in the 80s like people are still stuck on that like the myth of it that's interesting right. but you said pop punk you said pop punk so like i'm guessing like obviously like early blink 182 like yep. like that album but like did you like the ataris do you, yeah, do you yeah. did you know them Dude, I was so into the Atari secretly that was not allowed. Like, you couldn't, like, in my neighborhood, you couldn't listen to that. It was like, no, wait, it's not Wu-Tang. Like, get out of here. Like, what do you like? What do you like? What do you like, boys? Like, that's what, like, so I used to secretly go to New Jersey with my, like, one friend who was, like, kind of, like, smart artistic a little bit, my buddy Adam. Shout out, Adam Picor. Like, we literally would, like, secretly go to New Jersey and see, see like, the Ataris at, like, little, like, smaller and then eventually a little bit bigger clubs. And it was like another world. Like we'd go over there and I could like be myself and enjoy this music. And then like, I remember one time, like I like fell in love with this like punk, like kind of into punk, like emo, pre-emo like girl. And I mean, when I say fell in love, I mean like met her one night and didn't even like barely talk to her. But like, it was just funny because right. she was so different from the girls that would like roll up like razor blades in like uh, uh, aluminum foil and keep it in their bra. Like some of the girls in my neighborhood. It was just a different world. So it was funny when you said that, like, I, I literally had like well, all I had to do was go across the river, and I was like, "Oh, I'm in a different world," you know. Uh, and what about musicals? Did, were, were you into musicals or like more like serious, um, like play, like you know, uh, Twelve Angry Men? Like, what what kind of stuff did you like theater wise? Well, I mean, like I just I would take these classes and I just like get into kind of like it's a different way to explore yourself. You know, you you have to put yourself out there in a way that like. You know, you're playing a character like you have to put away yourself and like really become somebody else. And I that's what I liked about it. I loved the the perspective angle, like just being able to like, you know, I am not me. I'm this person. I'm this character, you know, and even if it's just for a little bit, like I have to set myself aside. And yeah, I mean, it's it's unnerving at first, but like. Because I like because I was so used to being in a band where it's like I'm on stage but it's me with like four other people, and 
then sometimes when you're doing like monologues or something, you know, it's harder because then it's just you and you're like, oh shit, like everything that I do is being scrutinized. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, know, that's I, it. I, it was fun. I mean, I'm I'm really going straight Sigmund Freud now, but like I can't help but think to myself like, you know, having to like be you know be this other character and like adapt to it and the uncertainty of it and like at first, I mean, that's not very different from what your life experience was up to that point, right? Yeah. I mean, so like, it was almost like a match, right? I don't know if like if seriously, if you want to pay me for these sessions, like I'm, I go <laughs> I run cheap because I have no degrees, so I'm gonna actually damage you. But no, that's really interesting. Okay, so so I've been doing a lot of talking. I get really excited about things uh, and tangents. But as I pivot to Henry, this is my I guess like pivot point. You mentioned in passing that it was February 2001. Is that when your mother passed away? Yeah. And that's like eighth grade, right? Yeah. So Henry and I are basically the same age cohort where like 9-11 happened while we were like leaving high school basically and so you're like exactly like a four year group behind that so like you're entering high school when 9-11 happens it's a different thing but it's still old enough to know that this is like a serious thing so I'm going to turn it over to Henry there but like it seems to me that there's probably something to be said about 9-11 and when it happened for you and how that informed things so uh take it away brother it it totally did like for me, I mean, so yeah, it was it was September of my freshman year. Like I had been at school for a month already because of sports camp, and then it was like that second week of school was when nine eleven happened, and it was funny because I I had friends whose like parents were editors of like you know papers in D.C. So they like were telling me all this information and stuff, and um, it was interesting. But like I wanted to find out more for myself. You know, I wanted to, I, I was I was hearing what the American media was saying about everything, but I was like, well, why don't I hear from the people, you know, like, especially when, when we invaded Afghanistan, it was like, well, fuck, like, I want to hear about what's happening on the ground. I want to hear from the people who were there. Like, I want to hear, so I would find other news sites. One of them unfortunately got shut down because she was hosting, um, the lady who started it was hosting like sites that would link to some of these different groups websites so of course the friggin you know the nsa and the cia got like hammered her but then i guess she became like an asset for them so <laughs> but anyways it was interesting for me at the time because this was the perspective that i'd never seen or heard before especially in the midst of like we're going to this other country and we're killing people well what do they think about it you know or like what is the information that i can get about what they think about it and that was really helpful for me, like my understanding of like, you know, what is America's role and are the things that we're doing like going to make us safer or not? And then when Iraq happened, you know, it was the same thing. It was like, okay, here's what's being said, but what is actually happening? Like, what are other people saying? And I think that's, that's always been so important to me is just the like pers- perspective and empathy are like my two guiding pers- like forces in life is, you know, I want to understand why people do what they do. And then I want to like be humble enough and empathetic enough to try to understand why they're doing it. Even if I don't agree with it, or even if it doesn't make sense to me. And because honestly, like, I mean, how else are we going to grow? And, and I think that that like that and that learning and that growth and like and that's been so important to me in my life. And it definitely started like it, kind of because of 9-11. <laughs> 
how did uh, what was your villa, uh, excuse me what was your view of the military let's say just prior to your mom passing that you, you mentioned about your old man being in the navy living that that navy brat lifestyle going to all these different places you must have had a, a clear if not balanced idea of you know is is the military a net good a net bad or a net good for me and that um you know what was what was your your thoughts about it at that time well so i mean i i feel like a lot of military families i have a lot of military in my family like my dad was in the navy both my uncles were in the navy um they were both uh on aircraft they were air crewmen and my one uncle, he was in for 28 years. He made, he made it to Master Chief. He was like a badass. Um, and then my their dad was in the Marines for a long time. He had been at he'd been in Korea, you know. And um, so I had this interesting experience. I didn't think I like made a moral judgment. It was more just listening and like trying to understand what their life was like and just being like, oh, that's an interesting story. But something that my dad had told me from a young age was always like, oh, um, you know, he's like, if you're ever going to join, you know, make sure it's the Navy or the Air Force because they'll actually teach you a skill that you can use. <laughs> and uh, it was funny because I didn't really like get that until I started to think about it. And then when I, and then of course, when I was in, it was like, oh yeah, like I totally get that, especially because I was stationed at an army base. So I got to see how much the army and the Marines focus so much on like being a soldier and like knowing your regs and all the like, the, the like procedural stuff that like seems like, you know, that's what your job is. But like in the Navy, like, I mean, the only way you advance past E3 is like a test. And that test is all about what your job is about and all the facets of your job, you know, and that was like, that was like, oh, wow, this really is about that. Like, it's more about do you know how to do your job well, not like, do you know, like this random regulation and is your PT score like, you know, like amazing. So. <laughs> I joined in 2009, December of 2009, and now I was 23 at the time. I I had spent all it like so 2007 was like I have to say this because this was like really important. Um, when I was 20, I so I went to college for my freshman year, and I didn't do very well because I was just like I don't think school is necessarily for me. Like I wanted to go out and do things. I didn't want to just like sit around and learn about them. I wanted to experience them. So. I left college and I went into AmeriCorps. I looked at this amazing experience of, hey, I get to be in this program where I'm with other kids my age. It was all 18 to 24 year olds. And you're in a team of eight to 12 people going around the country helping out. And this was 2007. So Katrina was still like the whole Gulf was still fucked up from that. So we were all spending half the year down in the Gulf. And that was like a truly you know, eye-opening experience for me to really be able to get out there and, like, see the devastation and see, you know, what happens when crisis happens and get to be a part of helping that. And my, like, best experience during that whole time, I it was actually early on. I, um, my first team's, pro like, you, you go 
you spend like two months in each project and you do that four times throughout the year. And then you have like a month on either end of training and like debrief. So uh, at the, like in early on, we were going to go to New Orleans and then like a week into my project in March, I got called, all of us were Red Cross certified to go do disaster trainings and stuff. Like if there was a tornado or hurricane or whatever. And so in my first week, they, um, they were, you know, they were picking people from the different places and they were like, Hey, you know, we have this tornado that just happened in enterprise, Alabama, which is in like the North central Eastern part of the state. And, um, they, uh, so there was a tornado there and they're like, you know, they asked me like, Hey, do you want to go? And it was cool. Cause I then got to meet all different people from all over the country that were in the program. Cause it wasn't just people from my campus, which was in Maryland. And so I was like, cool, I'm getting to meet more people and getting to really help people. And we got there like six days after the hur- the tornado. And I, I'd never seen so much destruction up close, like so recent and it, it looked like someone just carpet bombed the town. And it destroyed over a thousand homes. Like nine people died. Eight of them were in the high school, like kids in the high school because it had hit the high school and like part of the roof collapsed. Um, but it like I got to work there like 14 hours a day, six days a week for like a month. And we were just, you know, we were doing damage assessments. We were doing um, the different fixing that we could do, like, simple stuff like you know removing debris or um we did a lot of shingling on roofs and like we did a lot of roofing to like fix that and uh it was really cool to be able to come to this town and just help people and everybody was just so welcoming and nice and i remember the last day we were there the mayor uh had set up a dinner for us at the church that we were using as our base of operations and you know, he, he just like laid out everything about like how grateful he was that we were doing what we were doing. And he was just like, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And I could just feel everybody in the room was feeling the same way. It was like an energy of like gratitude and just like, and I could feel like everybody felt it. And we were all just like, and, and I knew in my heart at that point, I was like, okay, I love this feeling and I want to do everything I can to like, keep feeling this way. And, uh, because he was just like, I mean, you know, we were getting like a stipend of like 167 bucks a week. So you're not doing it because you're making money. You're doing it for the experience and for the like, because you want to help people. And it was so cool to be in a group of kids my age that all felt the same way as I did. And we were doing something. We were legit helping. And then yeah, I spent half a year in the Gulf helping out with Katrina and uh, different experiences there. And then half a year I was in Maryland to like do different stuff with kids and with Girl Scout camps and um, it was just, it was so great. Like, it was so cool for me to like get that feeling. And, uh, but then I went back and like, you know, became a server at, like when I got out, cause I was like, Oh, I just want to make money. But I lost my job at the beginning of 2009. And this, you know, it just sucked. Cause then I was trying to find a job. I couldn't find a job. I was just like, fuck, I don't know what to do. And I knew that I wanted to go back to school at some point. So that's when I went into the recruiter. And that's in April of 2009. And, you know, they, I took the ASVAB and they were like, oh, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And I was like, well, I, d- I don't want to join the nuclear power program because that's what my dad did. <laughs> and also it's like really math and science intensive. And you don't really have a lot of duty stations. Like you're either on a ship or on a sub 
or you know you get to work at the training reactor in Groton, but that's not. I was like, yeah, that doesn't sound really interesting to me. So the next thing they offered was uh, the intelligence community, which was first they offered me the linguist position, but I didn't pass the weird language test that you have to take to do that. So they were like, oh, well, you can do this, you know, you do this other thing. And it was the electronic intelligence job that I got. And it's, they, you know, they don't tell you much. They don't give you much in the description about what the hell you're actually doing. So I didn't really know until I got to my training command and started going to school, like what I was actually doing. I just knew that I had to have a security clearance. And I was like, okay, like, this will be interesting. Like I will get to, again, it'll be a new experience. It'll be a new thing. And I'll get to be a part of a community that not a lot of people actually know that much about. So it sounded interesting to me. And it was like a lot more geography based and stuff. And I was like, oh, I like that. I like understanding more about cultures and people. And that sounds fun to me. But I mean, it was I was 23 at the time. So I, it, it, it was funny, though, in boot camp, I thought I was going to be like on the older side of things. But because of the time period, there was a lot of kids who were my age, like the 21 to 23, 24 range, because a lot of us were in the same boat of like, we need, you know, we need a better option than what we have available to us. So why not join them in the military? Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Korgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. So, just to go back for just one second, the uh, you you had a really fundamental experience with pain and suffering and and uh, um, human survival in being part of AmeriCorps. Did that inform your, you later on as you were trying to understand what the American military does overseas in terms of, you know, in terms of causing suffering, in terms of causing massive damage, 
and what people have to live through in those exact moments. Um, you know, that must have been a really powerful connection there because you're able to, you know, I really understand this. You know, I, I had no kind of experience like that before I went to Iraq. Iraq was was those those kind of experiences. But um, and also about helping people about about grabbing onto and and promoting that feeling, wanting to chase that feeling of helping people because you knew what that was actually like. You knew what that actually looked yeah. like and also what it didn't look like when people try to, you know, bullshit you about uh, the us care, uh, excuse me, about the U.S. caring about human rights or, you know, other red herrings. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I feel really fortunate that I got to be a part of the community that does as much as it does because I really got a really good overview of what's going on. You know, if I was just like some guy on a carrier, like doing, you know, like one specific job, my world would have been so small. Or if I was, you know, some guy like sitting in some fob or like in CAF, you know, doing my job there, like it, it would have been a little more like intensive. But again, I wouldn't have had the broader picture that I got to have because I was at NSA. So it was like, I, I mean, I and and also I moved shops a lot or a couple times when I was in at NSA. So I got to see more of what was going on there than I would have, you know. And um, but no, it really was it really was a huge disconnection. Like when we would do a strike, you know, and I'd see people like high fiving each other or like you know being all like fuck yeah about it, you know. And I just like like. I, I would go back to that to that when I was at Enterprise and I saw all that destruction up close and I was like like we're fucking up people's lives. Like like, like that was always the first thing I had was like, this is a life, this is a community that is forever impacted by this thing that we're doing. And we have like everybody around me has no concept of what that's like. And well, I mean, not not nobody, but like the people who were being all excited, you know, and thinking that this is like some video game or like this is something that has no consequences for the future. That just like I it was, you know, I couldn't sit there and just be OK with it because I, I feel like, you know, even if I didn't know what those people's lives were like, I feel like I had some kind of insight. Uh, so I have like uh, one anecdote and then two questions uh, just based on what you said. So I've written about this, I think, in at least um, one article. It's spoken about it, but like, it was. I wrote an article about my fire support officer Jordan, who's like one of my best friends, and like it was like called like the curious case of Jordan Rich. And he was a little bit like you, and uh, not really so much in background, but like in demeanor and like, just like, I don't know, like a thoughtful and empathetic person, like lost in the military. You know, like he was just one of those, like he was like kind of Andy Dufresne-ish, like he's above all of this, you know what I mean? Like just right. that whole thing. But like I wrote about how like one time at the very end of the tour, like after this, like we our towers, we get shot at every day in Afghanistan. I was a troop commander and um, we like came up with a plan to like put one of our best marksmen who'd been through like sniper school up on the roof and we like used the cameras in a certain way on the base and we like kind of triangulated where this shot, you know, they would fire from like four or five different places we figured out. And like, we kind of timed, we figured out they were using some sort of patterns. We like timed it. And we're watching this dude like crawl around the corner, like pop at our towers. And then like, you know, we called in up to the roof and like Sergeant Jay um, blows this dude's fucking head off. And we watched it like on the camera right now. He was only about 200 meters away 
Um, whereas your targets were very far, and that's going to like inform one of my my following questions. But like, we cheered. Like my talk erupted, including me. And like I thought I was above that. I was against the war, right? I was against both wars, and this was my second. And it was so satisfying in a way. And then I literally remember thinking, like minutes afterwards, like who the fuck have I become? Like who are we? Like this is a dehumanizing experience because like I'm an anti-war guy who's like shouldn't even still be in uniform. Like I was so against it. That was jarring, right? And and so I guess my two questions are, are this. So like the first one is like a back a backwards looking one. You've had different experiences, even in terms of what you had done previous to being in the military. I mean, working with communities on like the community service side is not necessarily like the typical experience of people who go into the military, right? Like uh, you didn't come in right after high school. I mean, you were like, you just had like a certain kind of empathy from both experience and probably some of it just nature versus nurture. But you were like a little bit of an oddball in that sense, right? Like a little bit of an outlier is a better word of putting it, you know, like to go all Malcolm Gladwell. And so having had that experience, I'm interested in like what you thought about the wars and that stuff. Because you come in in 05, uh, 09, right, is when you joined, graduate in 05. So by 09, like, I guess they were trying to say Iraq was getting better, but you'd seen how much of a mess that was. Now Afghanistan's starting to heat up in a bad way. By 08, the story is actually Afghanistan's falling apart. And if we don't send, like, a billion more troops and listen to generals, it's going to, like, fail. So you were, like, aware of that stuff already. Like, you didn't join right at 9-11. So, and you'd also had this, like, different kind of experience. So you weren't necessarily the prime candidate for the military in that sense. So I'm interested in, like, what you thought of the wars and, like, why join and what, did you have a different view then than you do now? And then the second one is the abstraction aspect of war, which is what, like, my next book's going to be about. Um, you know, what comments, I guess, after you finish answering the first question, then it's, like, a big one. What comments do you have or like perspective did you gain from watching war being waged in the new way? Like I think the way that you viewed war, like the way that you saw it and the way you experienced it is the way most people are going to moving forward, right? You got like a precursor look on the early edge of that kind of tech savvy war as distant and abstract and fought from like far away. So I guess those are my two questions. And, and I do think in a weird way they're related. I hope. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, I had no illusions. Like, when was it? Like 2004 was when all the WMD stuff started coming out, when people started realizing, oh, we went to this war on a lie. Like, we were lied to. And that's, and like, I mean, maybe not everybody wanted to hear that at the time, but like, the, the evidence made sense to me. Like, we weren't finding shit. And nothing that we like they there was no connection between nine eleven all the evidence that they tried to say was just bullshit, and that's the way I felt coming in like i I had no illusions that like these wars were you know good like I didn't think that at all. I knew that they like with some ideal or whatever, but we're not often the ones who have to stay there and clean up or the ones who do the work to like help make things better their story isn't as like, you know, it's not as promoted. It's not on the same level as the guys going out there and like risking their lives and doing all the damage. The people who do the work of actually like trying to put things back together, we don't elevate those stories as much. And like, I don't know, I, that that needs to change. And if, if it does, I think we would 
have more people being willing to ask those questions and really like push people into the thing of like, are we making things better? Like that should be the question that we're asking. I wanted to ask about um, we've had uh, we've had your friend Mary uh, on the podcast and talk about her her experience in the Navy and essentially doing a very similar job to yours, but that she did deploy with mm-hmm. Fifth, Fifth Fleet. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you might contrast your time in the Navy and working in St. Georgia with hers. And I know you mentioned that when we talked to her, that, that you you heard things from her and it just wrecked your notion of, of what it means because again, it, her experience was just so different. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I feel really fortunate that I got to be in a community that had more women than in uh, a lot of other communities. So, and like, I don't know, in my life, I've always been better friends with women than men for some reason, because I just never, I, I don't, I, none of that like toxic masculinity stuff really ever gravitated towards me. It was never something I wanted to be a part of. So I feel like I've always been friends with women more. And, but it was, it's just so frustrating to hear their perspective of like what it's like to be a woman in a male dominated environment and what it's like to, like, and especially when you're deployed, like, you know, they would just tell me all kinds of shit that just would go on. And you know, it it all gets swept under the rug because it's seen as like, oh, well, that's just something that happens, you know, because it's been normalized and it's not okay. But, you know, the military is not ready to grasp with that. <laughs> yeah. Like until the military is ready to acknowledge toxic masculinity and acknowledge that none of these things that they promote about like that kind of mentality are good. You know, I don't think that's going to change, but um, no, it, it's so different. It's it, it. I think that's that's one of the cool things that I liked about my job was that in our community, you can do pretty much everything like you can be on any platform. You can be, you know, like people could be doing my job. They could be sitting on a ship doing anti-missile stuff. They could be sitting on a ship doing my job. They could be on an airplane. They could be with the SEALs. They could be with... Um, you know, like anybody. And so it was cool because you talk to people in the community and really get a sense of what the rest of the military is like because we can just be in so many places. And so I do, I feel like fortunate in that respect, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, no, it was, it's totally different. And I again, it's I, it's so important to hear people's stories and understand that like, not everybody is the same and not everybody has the same perspective. And yeah, was there um, was there any substantial change to your job when you switched over to being a, a contractor, or was it more or less the same kind of thing? Oh, well, I never, I mean, I was still in the Navy the whole time. Like I just, I was just moving shops because it was like, oh, hey, we need you in this place. And then we need you in this other place. So it it was cool because I got to see, and like, and the big thing too is at least in my command, most of the like grunt work, the analytic work is done by military and contractors. And so the NSA doesn't really have like 
I mean, they were like the supervisory stuff or like some of the higher level things. But most of the most of the normal stuff was done by, you know, people in the military or the contractors. And um, that was cool because like, I didn't know that. Like I thought like everyone has this idea of the different institutions and you feel like, oh, if you're working for this institution, then you're like a part of it. But I mean, every maybe that's just a post 9-11 thing, but I feel like we've definitely gotten a lot more integrated with everything because again, in, in the pursuit of that efficiency of making the function of the military better, they've definitely gotten better at that part. But the unfortunate thing is, again, there's no follow-up. But it, it's, it was, like, like I said before, the difference between the strategic thinking versus the short-term, like, tactical thinking was an interesting thing to explore. It wasn't something that I would have gotten to do if I was just working with, like, the Navy side of things. No, I think I, I think I confused you and Mary because I want to say that she worked as a contractor. Did no, she, no, did she... no, she was she was just in the military. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's I'm not crazy. sure who the heck I'm, I'm who the heck I'm thinking of, but at least they <laughs> cleared it up. Um, so you leave the military. What year did What year did you get out? Twenty thirteen, December twenty thirteen. Okay. So take us from about that time. Um, up until you reached out to me about the podcast, kind of what was what was happening for you in that in those uh, four or five years? Yeah, so I got out. I immediately left Georgia because I knew I was not going to stay there. I did have a time period where I thought, you know, maybe I would be a contractor, but like really, once I started to solidify more about the fact that I was firmly against what we were doing. That I, you know, I, I had, I think I told you this before, but like I had an opportunity to go work for uh, Lockheed because my buddy was going to go do that. And, you know, he was like, oh, it'd be like 250 a year, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, like it, it was a five-year contract and it was like 225, 250 a year. And I was like, oh, you know, but then I thought about it and I was like, wait a minute. Like if I'm already feeling like this bad when I'm doing this job, and I want to keep doing it for five more years, like, where am I going to be mentally? I, I just knew that I would be a wreck. I would be, because I'd be doing something that's against my principles. So I was like, okay, no, I'm, when I am get out, I'm going to be done with this. I'm going to go back to school. You know, I, I wanted to leave. And also I wanted to leave Georgia and get away from the, like, the narrow-mindedness of the community that I was in. So I, I, you know, I packed up my car with as much as I could take and I sold the rest of my stuff and I moved to California with one of my friends who got out two weeks before me. And so then we were, uh, we were in school there for a little bit and I was really just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I wanted to go into politics, but like political science was like, while it's always been interesting to me, I knew it was like, I, I like politics is so much about fundraising and like, you know, you're promoting yourself and I've just never really given a shit about that. Like, I think, yeah. So, um, but I, I was just, you know, I was having fun in school. I joined this women's empowerment club because I, I wanted to go do something. I felt like I was getting in that same mentality of I'm just going to school. I'm not like contributing. <laughs> 
And and it was hard going to school. Like when you go to school, like right after that, I I just had no clue. Like I thought I thought I could just get out of the military and just be okay and just like, you know, do whatever I wanted to do. But, you know, that feeling of isolation and alienation that you get when you're out, you know, and here I am in school with kids like 10 years younger than me. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, like what the next steps are and while also staying informed, like trying to understand what's going on in the rest of the world. And, you know, here I am in school with like kids whose lives are so small and it's not their fault. That's just the way that their lives have been. And, but it was, it was frustrating to me. I'm like, why the fuck are you guys caring so much about this little shit when like, you know, there's all these people that are dying. And, but I, you know, I had to take a step back and be like, okay, you know, this is their perspective. It's not mine. I'm coming in with a totally different worldview than all these folks. So, but it did make me feel that way. So that's why I got involved in the club because I was like, well, I care a lot about gender equality. I care a lot about, you know, self-expression and letting people be themselves. And that really helped. Like it really helped to finally be doing something and be around other people who felt the same way that felt like, you know, we knew, like they felt like they were trying to do something and, trying to raise awareness and like help people think differently about stuff and that was really good but I left school because I was feeling the same way I was feeling like I didn't have a direction like I didn't know what I was going to do with school so my girlfriend who is now my wife uh at the time she was like hey we met at the club too like we were both interested in other people at the time but then we were working on this project together and uh, this event called take back the night where they do them all over the country. And that's where we got, like, we worked together and we just were like, oh, you're cool. Like, yeah, you're really cool too. <laughs> and, it, but it was, it was cool to come together because of our values. Like we didn't come because we were like searching out. We were, again, like I said, we were interested in other people at the time, but we came together because we really had like a connection and, you know, we were friends for a while too. And, but then she, you know, she comes up to me uh, in, 2016 and she's like hey i'm gonna go to portland state like do you want to come up to portland with me and uh i you know i was thinking about it i was kind of on the fence for a while at first but it it was really hard finding a job that would pay enough for me to stay where i was because the bay area is just so expensive and I was like, well, I mean, like Portland is not as expensive and, you know, it's a little bit smaller. So maybe I'll have a little more opportunity to do things. And so I came up here and I was working at a restaurant like in California serving at a. And so there was another it was a California pizza kitchen. So I moved from there in California to one here in Portland. And uh that was hard because it was not as much. And so again, I was like, well, I need something better. I need something that's going to, you know, make me feel better and also give me some stability. So I went to one of those veteran hiring fairs in Portland and uh, there was a bunch of nonprofits there. And I was like, yeah, like this is, I, I've worked for a nonprofit or like I've worked at these communities before. And I know that that's something that makes me feel good. That's something that where I know I can make a difference. And and then I also was like, oh, I'm a veteran. Like, I can work with veterans. Duh. Like, that's, that satisfies both of my requirements of, like, helping the community that I'm also a part of and, uh, you know, helping people get better, like, helping people better their lives. 
Um, so I worked for them for a little bit. Uh, I was started out as employment, and then I moved from that over to housing in this grant per diem program, which is a VA program for, it's a transitional program for vets, for homeless vets. And uh, I was lucky enough to like get that, to move from that program to the program that I'm in right now, where I'm running a housing, a permanent supportive program for vets. And, and especially the chronically homeless, everyone has to be chronically homeless. They have to have a disability. And the nice thing is that they don't need to meet the VA definition. They just have to have, like, all they literally have to have is, like, their signature on the DD-214. Like, as long as they have a DD-214, if you signed your name on the dot line, you, you can be in my program. And that's great because there's so many people who fall through the cracks that don't meet that requirement, whether they... You know, they were only National Guard and they never got deployed overseas or they, you know, were in for a couple months and then they got discharged or it just wasn't a good fit. You know, I mean, we all know plenty of people that that was the case, like in boot camp and out of boot camp. And yeah, and like it's it I don't think it's fair that just because they, you know, it wasn't a great fit or something happened that all of a sudden they can't get the benefits that we enjoy as like you know, full considered veterans. And I mean, cause to me that whole, that whole distinction just feeds more into the bullshit of like, you're not a real veteran, you know, of like, if you're not in combat, like you weren't shot at, you're not a veteran. And I know that that's starting to change, but all those people with bad paper or like general, not other than honorable, you know, they're, they're not considered veterans. And I think that that's bullshit. So, because like you, you made the decision to go into something that could possibly kill you and you're not going to get like, nobody's going to acknowledge that, that you decided to take that chance. <laughs> like, I don't think that's okay. But especially because I see, I see how frustrating it is for like, for people to try to navigate through systems by themselves with not a lot of direction, with not a lot of help. And it's not like we prepare people for when they need help. You know, there there aren't like agencies doing, you know, marketing or PR campaigns being like, hey, if this happened to you, like you could get help. It's not like if we did like what lawyers do, <laughs> you know, we put ads on TV, like, you know, there are none of that. So the, it's always when people are in crisis is when they start to reach out for help. And that is not like, it's so frustrating because that we don't have systems to like accommodate for people before they're in the shit. Because when you're already there, you have to deal with so many things. So then trying to go to some place and like make sure you have all this documentation and you know that you can spend the money to get to the place and get all those things. You know, that's just something that like people who've never had to think about that don't think about. And our systems are made up by a lot of people that have never been in the position of having to actually use the systems so they don't they don't get that but it, it it was it's yeah i mean i was doing that and i had just started at the county like before we did uh, our podcast because i started in april of 2018 and april so it's been three years now i've been there and you know i've seen a lot i've i feel like things have gotten so much harder especially over last year like I just like my folks who are already feeling so isolated and so, you know, like nobody's got their back, like they don't have support. And then it just was even worse because a lot of them were by themselves and 
when, especially like when people are homeless and they're outside, you know, you develop a community. Like most people develop a community. And then, you know, we, we sit here and we say, hey, this is a great opportunity. Like, let's get you out of there and let's get you housed. And for, you know, regular folks, we can sit there and say, yeah, that's a good thing. And yes, it is a good thing to get people housed, but we're taking their community away. And so then we take them from being outside, being able to talk to their neighbors to like help each other out to then here's four walls and a box and like it's yours, but you know, you're missing all of that other stuff that made you feel like somewhat okay. And, and we're not giving them places to replace that. And me as in my job, I don't have the, you know, like that's part of being in a permanent program is trying to get people to move from that survival mentality of what am I going to eat today? Like what's my next hours, like next week going to be look like you can't think that far ahead when everything is survival, but to really move from that mentality to like trying to think more longer term, it's not something that happens overnight and it may take decades for people to do that. And, or, you know, for the rest of their life, like I, I know, I mean, I've already had some people pass on my program, but I know that some of my people will, you know, they'll die in my program and that sucks. But like, it, it's also good because I'm giving them, there's like some dignity, like at least they were housed, at least they, you know, they had supports, they didn't die on the street, but like, that's the bare fucking minimum. That's, that's the bare minimum to me. And I, I'm getting so frustrated because I feel like, like, especially after last year, I mean, we got to see how nothing in our systems are about taking care of people and we do a terrible job at it because we haven't invested in actually helping people. So it, it, yeah, I've just become so much more um, impatient with systems because of that, (laughs) because I just like, we, we, like I said earlier, like these are choices that we've made policy wise to ignore these problems and, or nominally, you know, work on them. the, The thing that, that is frustrating to me is, you know, like, yes, veterans do need help, but like we, especially after the last decade, like when Obama said like, hey, we wanna end veteran homelessness, that actually did, and then they created vehicles and spent money to make that happen. So at least where I am, you know, we're doing a good job of that. Like we're doing a pretty good job of housing people and we're doing a good job of identifying them right away and figuring out resources when it comes to veterans. But everybody else, is getting way, way left behind, especially after last year. And, you know, I talk with my coworkers that don't work with veterans and that's always their big thing is like, hey, you know, yes, we want to like, of course you guys deserve help, but so does everybody else. And I'm like, oh, I'm totally on your side. Like now's the time. And now that we show that the model's effective, now we need to do it everywhere. And the the hard part is then convincing the people who make the policy to do that because a lot of them, you know, it it frustrates me how many of our politicians come from the business community because business is all about profit and loss and, you know, making sure that you're always making a profit at the end of the day. But that's not what government is about. Government is about serving people. It's about, you know, creating services. And that requires spending money and spending resources. And 
when you have people who come from the community of make money, they're going to look at spending as a bad thing. And that's only going to make things worse. Like it's, it just pisses me off because it's such short-sighted thinking of uh, like, oh, well, this is going to cost us so much money up front. Yeah, but like, look at what we're going to save by doing these things. Look at what we're going to create. How much, like, <laughs> it's just so stupid that we don't think about that. But that's why we're at where we're at. And that's why we only spend 15% of our GDP on services in this country. And because we devalued it. And those are choices that we made. And if we want to do better, we have to start spending more. We have to start doing more than what we're doing because otherwise I don't really see that things are going to get much better unfortunately <laughs> and maybe that's maybe because I spend so much of my time around people who are like feeling that way it definitely affects me <laughs> more but that's just because I see it but it's like come on I mean I think anybody who can take a look at trends and take a look at systems can see that that's that's what's going on and if we want to get better we have to make some huge radical shifts away from money and away from the short-term gains and towards the longer term like stability what does stability actually look like and how do we get there and i mean it's not it's not it's not a utopian fantasy because there are countries that do it every day and like we have examples across the world of how things could be better and we just choose not to do that yeah it's a it's a it's a, a deliberate effort to just devalue human life. I think, you know, that the like you said about about business leaders is that what what good is it to them housing homeless people? You know, what they're like. You know, what benefit do we get out of that? But that if if people like you and I, you know, we continue to remind people that there's a bigger cycle, that there's a bigger way to see this, and and really knock on the door of other people's humanity is like. What would you say if you saw your neighbor like this? What if you? What would you say if you saw a close relative, you know, treated like this? Um, and uh, you know, there's uh, there's there's something too that I think in terms of understanding why red states spend so little on on those on those kind of things. Um, but they, but it's they always have to looked be... at as a negative. That's that's the problem. Is they look at every kind of spending. As like, like so much of what good is done in government, at least from what I've seen on a local level, is it's so much more about perception. Like, are people being, are we telling the narrative that we're helping people? Yeah, but like, are the things that we're doing actually helping people? Not as much as we could be. And I say this living in a county or living in a county and then working in a, the county next to it that try like where we try, you know, we're at least trying and we're at least spending the money and the taxpayers are willing to do it. But in those other places where that's not, I mean, I bet there's plenty of people that would love to help if they knew that it would work, but they don't have, they don't have people on their side telling them that. They don't have people helping them convince them to say, hey, look, this might cost you a little money or like your property tax might go up a little bit, but look at what's going to be done with it. Like you, you're frustrated at how your community is feeling and the fact that people are leaving and the fact that all this stuff is drying up. Well, here's a way to do something about it. 
you know, and it's not always perfect, but it's better than, you know, it's better than doing nothing. But I feel like that's the problem too, is that we get to that point where we say, oh, it's better than nothing, but that's the bare fucking minimum. Like that's not what we should be saying. We should be coming from the opposite perspective of like, here's our goal. How do we want to create healthy, stable communities? And then let's do what we can to make that happen. Everything is in in our world. It's so much about, you know, perception of like, oh, are people going to perceive this negatively? Oh, we shouldn't do it then. But even if it's going to be something good. And I'm like, fuck that. Like, come on. Like, sometimes you have to stop fucking around with optics and caring about perception and just do the thing. Because eventually you will be proven right. I mean, that's how every social change happens is that people like you had the long period of equivocation and people being like, let's try to hash it out and see what both sides say. And then when you realize that there is literally a side of people that will never agree with you and they for whatever reason, I don't know why that is, but, you know, there's there are always going to be people that are not going to like what you're doing, but it will be proven in the long run to be beneficial to them. Because eventually they'll be like, oh, wait, you know, all of these problems that we had are gone now or significantly reduced, you know, and it's because of the thing that we decided to do. And it just takes people being willing to be courageous and make those choices and then support the people who are. Well, I, um, I only had one more question that I wanted to ask you before we uh, before we wrap up. Um, I did more of a two part question actually. Um, I'm curious about um, how you came to find the podcast, and that since um, since you and I have been been keeping in touch, how where are you at right now? You know, after after at at, you know, at at the the end the end of your life so far, um, here in terms of of, you know, wanting to be a part of the podcast and discuss these these kind of topics, finding them important, um, you know what, uh, what what can you what can you tell us about Kagan today, that might have been not existed two three years ago? What is what? what has all these experiences and in, in addition to your job, like you said, you know, you, you're just, just over three years of doing it and it's, it's gotta be powerful on your, your day to day, everything, and not just positively powerful, but sometimes negatively powerful as well. I, I mean, I feel like in the, over the last decade, I've definitely become a lot more cynical. <laughs> like I, I mean, I feel like when I was younger, I was used to be the like guy that I was happy all the time. Like I was really optimistic. I try to make people feel good. That's like all that I try to do in my life. Um, but I feel like as I've come to reckon with the reality of like the systems that we are in and how oppressive they actually are, you know, regardless of intention, um, it definitely makes me sad, <laughs> especially like this last year again, where, you know, I just, we just failed. Like we failed miserably at making it like containing COVID at like doing what we could to mitigate it because there's so many forces that are like pushing back. But 
the thing that gives me hope is that people are starting to realize this. I think people are starting to get what it means to like, like to look outside of these things that we've existed and just accept it. And that there's more people who are willing to be like, is there a better way? Is there something that we can do differently to make our existence better and make the future better? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard though, because I see all the forces arrayed against that idea against wanting to make things better. Just be just, and it's not even like malicious. I mean, sometimes it's malicious, but more often than not, it's just because people don't want to rock the boat. Like people want things to keep going, especially when things are going well in people's lives, they don't want things to change. And there's a huge section of people not huge, but there is a good section of people in America that like they don't have to worry about anything. And so they don't have to question their existence. They don't have to question the life that they have because it works out for them. And it, like what I would love to do is to try and I think like what I've tried to do my whole life is just like raise awareness of those people, of those different communities. I think it's just a continuation of my you know, linchpin thing that Danny was saying. It's like, you know, there is a way to bring people together from disparate groups because we're all human. We all want the same things. We all want happiness. We all want security, like for ourselves to feel safe. We want to feel stable and we want to feel like there's a future. And the only thing that we disagree on is how to do that for like the regular folks. But then there are the people that are in control of stuff that want to keep things in control. So I, but like, I, that's what I care about is like bringing more people together to understand the shared values that we all have and move forward from that aspect. Like the other stuff can get worked out, but like if we stopped bickering over the stupid stuff that doesn't actually impact people's lives in like a, in like a real, like affecting those things that I said, you know, if we focused on those things and we actually, again, asked the question of, how do we make it better for other people or how do we how do we get to this place and then create this infrastructure to do it you know i i feel like there's more people out there that want to do it than not and it's just a question of getting people to think about it in that way that's all i want i just want people to start thinking outside of themselves more and like think about how other people in their life. And I know that I've had a really unique experience in life because I've gotten, you know, whether it's been positive or negatively, I've gotten to have a lot of different experiences and I've gotten to put myself in places that not a lot of people have been in or whatever. But like, I'm not doing that for myself. I'm not doing it to, um, you know, make myself look good or like promote myself. I'm doing it because I want to understand people and I want to help them. And I don't know if that's like unique or whatever, but it's kind of my guiding principle in life. <laughs> oh, um, uh, how did you, uh, how did you find the podcast? Oh, um, I, I saw one of you guys posted something on the intercepted page. It was like your, one of your first couple of episodes. And I remember listening to it and I was just like, fuck yes. Like this, this is the thing. Like here's dudes, that like, I, cause I've been trying to do that on my own too, you know, like talking to people about what I've been part of, especially because the stuff that I was a part of is not at the time, wasn't really known. 
Like people didn't know that we were doing stuff in Somalia or Yemen or other parts of Africa, you know, or Syria. Like people didn't know that at the time. They do now because we we were more obvious about it. But that I was trying to call attention to these smaller things because they obviously had the potential to blow up. And it was so great to see that you guys were doing that. You guys were bringing that that mentality of like, here's what we've been a part of. And also here's what's happening based on our experiences and the research that we've done. And I just was like, fuck, yes. Like this is the, this is what we need. Like we need more people who think like us and willing to speak out and create this other narrative other than the like, every veteran is somebody that agrees with what's happening or doesn't want to talk about it. And that's not the way that we think, especially in our generation, we were really fortunate to grow up with that, to grow up with that, like in the media of people wanting to tell their stories, you know, and that made us want to do it too, I think. And so it's really great that like that you guys did that. And that's why I reached out to you the first time. Cause I was just like, Oh my gosh, I love what you guys are doing. Yeah. You and I, chatted a little bit offline before we started about um you know how that has changed in our in our generation of veterans that that talking about your service talking about the horrors of war of combat of um you know that it it is quite different from past generations you know most of our you know your your relatives all your relatives that serve my relatives that serve they all you know, we're all mostly the the, the silent majority of, of veterans. Yeah. Sorry, I know that has a different connotation, but it just made <laughs> sense to me. Um, no, yeah, yeah. But but that, and also is that because of that, that means that a vast majority of those stories are ones that we would caution people to look at through a much more skeptical lens, because sometimes people can get you know, make assumptions about that, you know, war is hell. And so you have to do anything. And we're like, well, you know, you, you, you really need to try to learn more about the game before you attempt to say, you know, what's happening in the game that, it, that it makes yeah. sense. It's like learning about football is that I, I, you know, in all my years of watching football with my old man, I still don't know a ton about the game. I've watched it a lot and he and I talked about it a lot, but that doesn't mean that i fully comprehend it and especially in terms of what we're trying to do is to say come and ask these people who have lived that actual experience don't let these guys over here that make it sound you know shiny and flashy and and better if anybody is telling you that war is something other than a horror that people have to find ways to survive through they're full of shit let's just Mm -hmm. you know and and um but yeah, I think that our work uh, of these kind of things of other, you know, other leftist podcasters, you know, that, that there there are so many stories that need to be pushed back against now. So what we do is all that much more important. You know, we, we, we know that we're a minority. We know that we fit into a, a small segment of people whose opinions about the military are, are, are quite different than society at large. Um, but yeah, I think that's just that's just why it's all the more important that we do this, you know, that we we break it down for people, let them understand, let them understand how we came to this point. You know, I've learned so much in our conversation today that I didn't that I didn't know about you. And I'm sure the uh, the, list, the listeners will really appreciate that as much as as much as Danny and I have. Um, 
is there anything you wanted to add at the end here before we close out? Any, any, uh, I don't, I don't specifically have a question or anything, but, but um, in terms of, of, of you and your, on, on your path that has involved this podcast and becoming anti-war, anything that you want people to know before we're, we're done here today? I mean, we just need to listen more, like more, I think there's more people who are the outliers need to feel comfortable about speaking up because your perspective matters. It doesn't matter what community you're in, like going along to get along only goes so far. And it only like, and especially like, I'm not saying in society, but like for you, like in terms of yourself, I know for me, like I couldn't, I couldn't stay silent. I couldn't just like go with it because it was absolutely against my principles of what being a human being is. And like, if you, if you are a human and you care about the things that we are supposed to care about in America, like self-expression and freedom, like real freedom, not the, like the veneer of freedom, like the, the freedom to be who you want to be. Like we need people to speak up. We need people to, to be in solidarity with each other, to realize not everybody fits the same mold, but we're all trying to get the same place. Like we're all, and, and the only way we can do it in the most effective way and the that really gets people a voice is for everyone to speak, like those who are outside to speak up and those who are in the majority to listen more, like to listen more to each other and not just like wait for a chance to talk, but like actually listen and understand where people are coming from and then support them in their journey. And that's all I want. That's all I want for humanity. I know it's a tall order, but it's something that I try to work through every day and try to help with my own self. No, every every drop in the bucket helps, man. You know, it it is a <laughs> think of back being in the army and having to march someplace. It it is one foot in front of the other, but the the being the on the podcast the helped me so. so much. It's helped me so much understand like I mean, yeah, like you said, it's we've learned so much over the time being in the podcast. We've gotten to do so many things, talk to so many great people, and it's really been a great vehicle for my own mental health. You know, before this, it was so hard to feel like, you know, anything that I was doing was, you know, making a difference or helping. And which is funny because, you know, objectively, people could look at my life and say that that's all I've done. But like, I don't, I, I always want to do more. And it, <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but like, I never feel like I'm doing enough. And it's it's a double-edged sword because it helps me be motivated and helps me like want to continue to help people. But, you know, I'm also putting a lot of pressure on myself that is totally unnecessary. <laughs> well, it's hard when you, 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 you have this clear idea of the kind of help that someone needs and you see the missing connections between the help and the help, you know, it, 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 it um, you know, I know for me, I, I got to a point where I was seeing things and reading things it was just screaming inside of me. It was like, I can't, I can't comprehend the things that I'm reading. How is it that, you know, and, and, it, and also is this, the military is a very, it's a very slow changing institution that there are, there are so many parts of it or things that have, you know, that predated my time in, that predated your time in that, you know, it just continues going forward because we believe in this stupid notion of tradition. 
you know, that, that, that we're, we're somehow carrying, um, carrying that forward. But, uh, well, man, I thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with Danny and myself and, and, and share, uh, essentially your life story at least like i said at least at least up until now and uh i'm sure the listeners will uh will really enjoy it uh as well we're on twitter at fortress on a hill and also at facebook.com at fortress on a hill you can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. Listen to my song. I hope.